Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Family Renewal Podcast. I'm Israel Wayne. And I'm Brooke Wayne. Today we're excited to be able to talk with you about Israel's new book, Education, Does God Have an Opinion? The subtitle is A Biblical Apologetic for Christian Education and Homeschooling. We've been so excited to be able to be on the road a lot this spring, be able to share with folks about this book and about its content. So today we're going to switch roles a little bit and I'm going to be interviewing Israel on his new book. This book came out in 2017, published by Master Books. It's about 238 pages, and it addresses a fairly comprehensive look at a biblical philosophy of education. And I'm so excited to have this book released. Uh, My first book that I wrote was published in 2000, and it was entitled Homeschooling from a Biblical Worldview. And at that time, I wanted to write a book that would give a perspective on education from the, the viewpoint or vantage point of someone who had been home educated, uh, because at that time in 2000, there really weren't uh, very many homeschooled graduates who were talking about their experience, and there weren't a lot of books, frankly, uh, dealing with a biblical philosophy of education. So I felt the uniqueness of combining those two elements uh, would be important. That book was about 160 pages. And um, just went out of print about five years ago, and I wanted to re-release the book, but I didn't want to just republish it. It really needed a major overhaul, and it wasn't because I disagreed with the content in the book. In fact, I think I'm more confident of most of the content of the book now than I was when I wrote it, uh, because at this point, I'm... I've uh, been married for 18 years. I have nine children. My oldest is 17. Our youngest is 17 months. And so we've had a lot of experience um, not merely being homeschooled. Brooke and I were both homeschooled, um, my family since 1978 and her family since 1983. So both of our families were pioneer homeschooling families and some of the first homeschooling families in the movement. And we were a couple of the uh, first homeschooled graduates uh, in in the the wave of the new modern Christian homeschooling movement, but uh, and I graduated from homeschooling in 1991. Uh, so to give you some idea of how uh, homeschooling has shaped our perspective, I mean, we were homeschooled back when it was illegal and uh, had an opportunity to think through these issues fairly systematically because uh, back in those days, when you're homeschooling against the law, you don't do so willy-nilly. I mean, you only homeschool if you've thought this through, and you have a really good reason for having done so. And so because we were raised in that era, uh, this was something we had to give a lot of thought to. Anyway, that book, uh, when it went out of print, it just was killing me that we didn't have it out available. People kept asking for it. And the the timing just didn't seem right. You know, I wrote uh, questions God asks, questions Jesus asks. Uh, Brooke and I collaborated on the Pitch in a Fit book, Overcoming Angry and Stressed Out Parenting. And so we did three books in three years, which was great, but this education book was sitting on the back burner, and uh, we were really thankful. We were approached by Master Books about coming out with a book that would really be 
the definitive work, if we could pull it off, the definitive work for this generation on what does God have to say on the topic of education. And I think we pulled it off. Um, we have been able to uh, take the best parts of the, the ideas and concepts that were laid out, uh, the skeleton frame, if you will, that was laid out in homeschooling from a biblical worldview, and then to be able to elaborate on that and to flesh it out with not just the experience of us being homeschooled ourselves, but the perspective now of being homeschooling parents and what we've learned through this process, just through additional study of scripture, additional study on the topic of education, and our experience in home educating our own children. So, so excited the book's available. Thank God uh, and thank Master Books for giving us this opportunity to have it out on the market. And we're grateful for everyone that's read it so far. We've had really good feedback. And uh, I think the most common response that I've read from people that have actually read the book, um, parenthetically, it, it always amuses me how people write reviews on it that obviously haven't actually taken time to read it. Um, that, that always is kind of a eye, eyebrow raiser for me. But of the people that actually read the book, uh, the most common response that I get is, this has really changed my thinking. Um, I see education very differently now after having read this book. I've even heard some homeschooling leaders and authors and conference speakers who speak on homeschooling full-time, uh, that this is what they do as a profession, um, have said the book has completely revolutionized the way that they think about home education. And um, so, so that's encouraging to us. It makes us feel like we, we hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my first questions is, um, based on something you say very early in the book, you say Christian children need a Christian education. Uh, I have two questions. One would be, where do you get this biblically, and what, does, what all does that entail? Well, the scripture tells us at the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding is the fear of the Lord. So if we're going to start out with the premise that children need an education, if that's our starting point, um, where are they going to get understanding and knowledge and wisdom? It only comes properly when you begin with the fear of the Lord. Now, for some people, that seems a little abstract, and it may seem like, okay, well, what does that mean, and how does that um, flesh out? Well, I think about Hebrews 11.6 that tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not that it's difficult, but it's impossible. And then it goes on to say that whoever would come to him has to acknowledge that he is, that he exists, that he uh, lives and rules, but also that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So any education that does not begin with the premise of faith uh, cannot please God. It has to begin with the, the acknowledgement that God has made everything and that everything we study is ultimately the process of seeking out his knowledge and his wisdom and his understanding. Um, we believe that as Christians, everything that can be known in the universe is known through revelation. God has revealed himself, his truth, his character, his nature, his attributes through two means, general revelation, which is how he's revealed himself through the laws of nature, and special revelation, which is how he's revealed himself through the scripture. And so, if there's anything in the universe that can be known, it's known through one of those two ways. And when we are teaching children, almost everything we're teaching them um, is one of the, through one of those means of revelation. 
most of the academic subjects that we study formally, like mathematics and physics and science and language and all those things, um, those are an example of how God has revealed himself through general revelation or the book of nature. Um, and there are other principles, spiritual principles that we learn through uh, the book of scripture, uh, special revelation. But we begin with this premise of God's existence and God's revelation, and we work our way out from there. So Peter says that we're supposed to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. The government education begins with the premise of knowledge, information, facts, data. It doesn't begin with faith. And we're told in Peter that we're supposed to start with faith, and then we add the next layer of virtue. And what is that? Well, that's character. A character is knowing how to appropriately apply the information, the knowledge and wisdom that you have. So if you don't have a proper moral foundation, um, then you're not going to know how to use the information appropriately. And in many ways, you're just creating a more educated criminal. So we don't begin with knowledge or abstract random facts uh, that are supposedly religiously neutral um, that's not where scripture starts, not with the transmission of facts. It begins with faith. God exists. He has revealed himself. He can be known. He has spoken. He wants us to understand the world that he has made and understand his nature and character and attributes that are revealed through the things that have been made. And then he wants us to learn how to become like him and how his nature, character, and attributes are, are things that we should aspire to in our own lives. That's that layer of virtue or character. And uh, you can't have character unless you have a moral law. And you can't have a moral law unless there is a universal moral law giver. And you can't have a universal moral law giver unless there is a God, unless there's a creator, unless there's something that stands outside of us as humans. And so as Christians, we have a very different worldview than the humanist. We believe that there is a God who is the universal moral lawgiver. He's given us a universal moral law. From that moral law, we know how we're supposed to live. And based on that moral law, we take the information that we study, that we learn, and we think about how we can apply it so that uh, our education is not just to know, love, and serve ourselves, which is the goal of a humanistic education, but instead it's to know, love, and serve God and love and serve other people which is really the Christian worldview. Well, you're jumping into some aspects later on in the book that, you know, when I first read this, I just was so amazed at the in-depth uh, treatment you give to taking each subject. Uh, let's see, there's logic, there's mathematics, there's science, language arts, history, government, music, the arts, and teaching all of those from the perspective of a biblical worldview. Sometimes as a homeschool mom, when I'm in the middle of my day and I'm teaching a reluctant speller just the very basics of how to spell and it's not going well, or I'm teaching a fourth grader fractions and they don't get it and you draw the picture of the pizza and you show all the slices and they don't get it, how, how can I bring in this aspect you're talking about of teaching this this heavy subject of biblical worldview into my everyday life there. I think one of the things that people uh, are often asked by their children is, why should I study this subject? Yes. Why do I need to learn math? Why do I need to learn how to read? 
And usually the answer that parents give them is in response to a worldview that is humanistic in some way. Um, Neil Postman used the term the god of economic utility. Hmm. And I think that defines really how even most Christians view education, that the purpose of an education is that you need to be equipped and prepared to be able to get a job, earn money, make a living, provide for yourself and your family, be financially secure, and basically exist. <laughs> or maybe or maybe thrive and succeed economically and live the American dream, something like that. Um, so almost always the answer that is given to the child is, you need to learn how to read so that you can provide for yourself when you're older, or you need to learn math so that you can make a living and provide for yourself when you're older. The thing is, there's not a lot of payoff in the mind of a nine-year-old when you're telling them that their their main purpose for studying all of these subjects is so they can work a job and make money and pay bills. They don't want to do that. That's not high on their priority list. And so, and really, I don't think it's all that high on, on God's priority list as an end. I mean, all those things are fine means in the sense that, you know, yes, we have to make money, we have to pay bills, and we want to provide for our family, but all of those things are, are means. They're not ends. Sure. And so we as Christians are very confused, um, I think oftentimes, on the difference between means and ends. There are really only a few ends in life, and the end of all of our life and studies, as Harvard College's original mission statement said in 1636, is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, uh, which is... Um, and to lay Christ in the found, as the foundation, lay Christ in the bottom as the foundation for all knowledge, sound knowledge and learning. Um, that that was the Harvard mission statement, and you know that's from John seventeen three, where Jesus said, "This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent." So coming to really know your Creator, to know the One who made you, and to understand Him and your relationship to Him, and then to understand the laws of the universe that He has. Uh, given us that help to reveal his nature, character, and attributes um, helps us, number one, for that purpose of of worship and adoration, of recognizing we're not just products of mere chance and happenstance, um, but we were made by a personal, infinite, loving creator God uh, to be in relationship with him. But then secondly... The second part, you know, where Jesus talks about in uh, Luke ten twenty seven about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, is this neighbor component that we are being equipped and prepared to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And that was the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 18, where God said to him, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and through you and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then in Galatians, what Paul says is he says, if you are in Christ, then you are spiritual descendants of Abraham and heirs to the promise. And that promise is that you now are are part of that lineage. You're part of that heritage. And you get and receive the promise God made to Abraham that God is going to bless you. He's going to make you a blessing. And through you and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's really what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about how you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, 
A city on a hill can't be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but instead they put it on a lampstand. It gives light to all the house. So we're supposed to let our light shine before men that they can see our good deeds and glorify our God who's in heaven. So our chief purpose, our our reason for being here is to glorify God and to share him with others. And so when we're doing our occupation, which is a means, we're not doing it to know, love, and serve ourselves. If we're doing it from a Christian worldview, we are doing this occupation to know, love, and serve God and love and serve other people. Well, what does that look like? I mean, if you're a good chef, if you're a chef, let's just put it that way, that's your occupation. You want to bless people. You want to glorify God through your skill, through technical excellence in what you do. You want to be good at what you do. The scripture says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And it also says, whatever you do in word or deed, we're supposed to do it all for the glory of God. And so, uh, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so, when we do these things, whether you're an accountant or you are an engineer or an airplane pilot or a physician or a farmer or whatever it is that you do, you're supposed to do it with all your might. You're supposed to do it with excellence. You're supposed to give glory to God so that people see that you are reflecting the nature and character of God. Everything that God does, he does with excellence. So when God, you look at creation week, when God made things, God was impressed with what he made. He stood back and he said, wow, that's good. That's very, very good. <laughs> and so, wow. you know, God, God is impressed with himself. He's impressed with mm-hmm. his handiwork. He's impressed with what he does. And he says, wow, that's amazing. That's, that's done really well. Well, we're his image bearers. We're made in his image. So what we do is supposed to be done with excellence. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that reflects God's glory. He's the creator. Uh, but, but we... Um, as image bearers, we create as well. We don't create out of nothing, uh, ex nihilo, like he does, but we take what he has created and we use that to recreate. Sure. And in our recreation, uh, in our utilization of the things that he's made, uh, we demonstrate excellence when we do things with skill and with precision. Uh, again, I think about the tabernacle. Um, when and the temple, um, when God talked about um, the things that were to be made in the tabernacle and the temple, he said it was supposed to be done with excellence. And I think about like Bezalel and Oholiab, the guys who were selected to make the, uh, the items that were used in the tabernacle, he says these were men who were really good at what they did and had great skill and ability uh, and the Spirit of God to be able to make these items with excellence. And God's pleased with that. And so, we do it um, to glorify God, but also to bless other people and to love them. I mean, if you're a doctor and you are operating on a patient and you sew them all back up and you got spare parts left over, <laughs> that's not a blessing to them. You know, Or if you're an airplane pilot and you were sloughing off during physics class or mathematics class and you didn't think it was all that important to study those things um you know you're not a blessing to the 250 people on your airplane in their final moments of their life and so we're supposed to do what we do to glorify god and love and serve other people anyway it's kind of a long-winded way of of, of us um 
of explaining that we ourselves as parents, we need to get this for ourselves. We need mm-hmm. to understand this. We need to have this as our worldview. And most Christians don't. And I ask them, why do you why do you exist? Why do you live? Why do you get up every day and go through life and and get dressed and eat food and feed the dog and do the laundry and all this stuff that you do day after day, pay the bills, pay your taxes. And, and they don't know, you yeah. know, they, they just know, well, we have to survive and we have to put food on the table. We have to, you have to eat, we have to live. And so that's why they do what they do. They don't really have a systematic, comprehensive biblical worldview about the matter. And uh, my contention is that I think as Christians, we need to learn how to be consistent with our worldview so that everything we do um, is reflective of our mission. Yes. And um, why don't you tell them about our um, family mission statement and how we have, you know, made sure that's central for our family. Well, we, we do want to keep it as a major focus for our family, the focus for our family. So we have a banner that we had printed up that has a beautiful picture on it. And it says at the very bottom, our mission statement. Our family mission statement taken from scriptures. We exist to know, love, and obey God. And to love and serve others. And that just helps us to stay focused as a family on what are we doing this for? What are we doing our our, uh, arithmetic for? What are we doing our house cleaning projects for? What are we doing projects where we try to serve other folks by? You know, what, what's our purpose there? And then if there's something that comes up where we're trying to discern, hmm, is this outing, you know, good for our child? We, we take it back to that mission statement and see if it fits in there. There's so many times where we're doing things that don't fit with the mission statement in our lives. We're doing things that don't help us to know God, that really don't help us to love and serve other people. It's really just about serving ourselves. and It's entertainment maybe that's not refreshing. It's not helping us to regroup for another day of serving folks. It's just yeah, a recre- mindless recreation is Recreation is a, a purposeful uh, necessity in life um, to have times where we, we rest and we rejuvenate. But again, that's a means. Uh, it's a me- I like what Ravi Zacharias says where he said something about... Um, Work should be central to the work and service should be central to the Christian, and uh, recreation or entertainment should be peripheral. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, for most Christians, recreation and entertainment is 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 central. It's at least it's their central goal. Yeah, maybe not time wise. Like time wise, but... they can't designate all their time to it. But it's like they work so that they can recreate, yeah. <laughs> so they can get away and. You know, and and just even the etymology of the word amusement coming from the two Latin words ah, meaning no or nothing, and muse, meaning to think about, to to be amused or amusement means to be non-thinking. And that certainly isn't what we're called to do in Scripture. We're supposed to be keeping our minds, you know, the Scripture says it will keep us in perfect peace if we keep our minds steadfast and stayed on Him. And um, so we're supposed to train ourselves to take every thought captive and make it obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a great discipline, but that's our calling. And so sometimes we need rest, like Jesus got away from the multitudes. He spent time alone. We need times of rest and reflection and and fun. Um, We need those times, but 
that's not the central purpose of our existence. Uh, our purpose is that we're supposed to be focused on the work that God has us to do um, here in the short little lifespan that he's given us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just it, one thing I want to jump back to that you said that I found interesting kind of popped up in my mind is it a thought I hadn't quite considered is how it is really important when our children say, why do I have to learn this? And a lot of times they're they're looking for a, a easy way out because they don't see those fractions as necessary or the algebra as necessary or grammar studies as necessary. And it's really a good thing that our children are asking those questions. They They have that sense within them that what I should do in my life needs to be important. And um, being able to answer that as parents sets the stage for our kids. Even if they don't get it the first round, it sets that stage for them to be able to think about what they are learning, the skills they are acquiring in their youth, in a new way. And we can't teach that to them if we don't have the right worldview ourselves. Right. What I find is that almost no Christians, you know, have really have a strong biblical worldview. It's not just my opinion. I mean, George Barna uh, says that 66% of all evangelical adults don't even have the bare basics of a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. I mean, only one-third have the, the ba- most foundational basics of a biblical worldview. And so um, this is something that each one of us, we need to have our our thinking revised, and, and that has to happen as a process for us as parents before we can teach appropriately these concepts to our children. So that's right. part of why I'm writing the book for parents. I'm wanting parents to get this inside of them, sort of like uh, the Shema there in Deuteronomy 6, where God says, this law which I give you this day shall be on your heart. Yes. And then you teach it diligently to your children. You can't teach your children diligently if you don't get it yourself. Well, it's just this morning I was reading a review that was done on this book, Education, and a mom was saying that she was spending this time in this book, Education, so that she could have some some teacher time being taught, so to speak, so she has something to give to her children when she hits the books again in the fall. If I um, am thinking of the same review, I, I just saw that a little bit ago. Um, she is a- actually a homeschooled graduate herself uh-huh. and uh, has been through the whole process of being homeschooled, but she admitted that she really didn't have a biblical philosophy, even though she was homeschooled, she's homeschooling her children. She didn't really have a biblical philosophy for approaching these subjects and knowing how to teach these different subjects, these different academic disciplines from a distinctively biblical worldview. And part of that is that we've bought into the myth that subjects, many subjects, most subjects are religiously neutral. Yes. I think math and science, physics, chemistry, Mm -hmm. phonics, you know, the geography, those are just religiously neutral subjects, and the Lordship of Jesus Christ doesn't have anything to do with them. It doesn't play into those subjects at all. I strongly contest that in the book and say you will either be teaching these subjects from a humanistic perspective, one that ignores God, that even either says God does not exist or is irrelevant to these subjects, or that will explain the relevance of the Lordship of Jesus Christ to every one of these subjects. Let me jump to another portion in the book where you talk about different classroom models. And you you touch on the fact that in the government schools, the classroom model, the teacher with, say, 20, 30 students, is based off of what um, could be called a herd mentality. Can you touch on that and then uh, show the differences between that and what might happen more in a homeschool setting? 
When you think back to uh, colonial education, you had K through eight classrooms for the most part, neighborhood schools with sibling groups together in these schools, you know, everyone in a small community joining together. So you had homeschooling, but then you had these, these community schools. And those community schools were really uh, parent-run, parent-directed. Sometimes they would hire a teacher or a tutor who would come in and teach. But you had multiple ages, multiple grades, and it was very decentralized. Uh, During the colonial days, like during the time when Noah Webster was a teacher, for example, every student would have a customized curriculum that was purchased and selected by their parent. So the teacher had to not only teach say, 20 different students of different grades, but teach 20 different curriculum programs. And uh, can you imagine how difficult that would be? (laughs) So anyway, um, the thing that that classroom did is it it encouraged um, still a a bit of independent thinking uh, that um, homeschooling certainly fosters. And when the 1930s rolled around with John Dewey and the progressives from Columbia University and a lot of the other teachers' colleges in America, they wanted universal standardized curriculum so that they could create a herd. They could create students who would all think the same, believe the same, no individuality. Um, They could create a monolithic kind of culture where everybody believes the same things, has the same values, uh, everybody has the same worldview. And increasingly... Uh, they're being just phenomenally successful in that. I mean, uh, yeah, I know that I probably shouldn't say this because um, I, don't, I try to get into politics too much, but it's our podcast, so if you don't like it, there's <laughs> lots of other podcasts out there you can go listen to. But you just look at the Republican and Democratic parties, for example. And the way that we think in America is we think, oh, well, the Republican Party is the conservative party and uh, the, the Democrats are the liberal party. But if you look at the Republicans and Democrats now and you roll that back um, to, say, even the 1950s, but, you know, you go back uh, before that to um, 100 years ago, um, you would find that most of the beliefs and most of the ideologies that the Republican Party holds to now, um, it's far more liberal I mean, certainly, you know, we've had a, a downward trend, I would say, you know, taking federalism, for example, getting off on a rabbit trail. But, you know, Abraham Lincoln introduced a lot of federalism, as mm-hmm. did Theodore Roosevelt, as did Woodrow Wilson, as did FDR, uh, you know, on, on up to the future. Um, but today, uh, even the Republican Party, most of them think like socialists. They just do. They have this big government worldview and and so the Democrats are a liberal form of socialism, and the Republicans are a conservative form of socialism. But, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that we've just moved the ball down the field. And so, you know, rather being, than being at the 70-yard line, we're at the 20-yard line. And you still have these two teams opposing each other. You know, they're faced up against each other. And you got the Republicans on one side, the Democrats on the other. Uh, but they're not at the 70-yard line anymore. They're at the 20-yard line. And so basically what's happening is that um, this group is, of Americans is just becoming increasingly more indoctrinated 
as time goes on into socialistic principles hmm. so that everybody thinks that it's the government's responsibility to uh, take care of our retirement, for example. Nobody questions Social Security. Everybody fights for Social Security. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, everybody fights for Social Security. Nobody questions whether government should be in control of education. Republicans fight for government education. Democrats fight for government education. Um, before long, everybody will fight for health care, government health care. Republicans and Democrats, everybody will fight for that, just like they do in Canada. The, the fact is we're increasingly becoming more and more socialistic, and, and that was intentional on the part of John Dewey and the progressives to create a, an educational system where there's a standardized curriculum, all the students all the same age, so that you could create peer dependency, create herds, and over time you would create a socialistic society. Yeah. I mean, John Dewey was a, an avowed socialist, and uh, he wanted to see socialistic principles brought into America. They've just been phenomenally successful. And it really takes being able to get out of the system and to create an environment where people are not part of that, that monolith, mm -hmm. where people have the ability to, to think outside of it. I, I call it the matrix. You know, that people are in the matrix, and then they don't even know they're in the matrix. Mm -hmm. And um, part of my goal is to come along and say, you know what, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's like asking a goldfish, what does it feel like to be wet? <laughs> they don't have any other point of reference. Right. And I was raised, you were raised, outside of the matrix. Yes. Our thinking is not based on the same kinds of um, perspectives that 80 to 90% of evangelicals have, mm -hmm. because they were raised... In the matrix. Right. And so for them, it's really hard for them to get their mind around the fact that the education should never look like school buildings, school desks, chalkboards, playgrounds, sports teams, prom, recess, school band. Waiting in line for the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, cafeterias. That None of that is what education is supposed to look like. You know, one of the, the correlations I've had in my mind is... Um, what if the government were to say parents are no longer uh, able or equipped to choose their own children's clothing? It will now be government issued and the parent has no choice. You know, once you sign up for this, that's it. You, you must go along with it. And so you're issued clothing that you have to put on your child. It doesn't matter if it fits and it doesn't matter if it's uh, seasonally appropriate. It doesn't matter... You know, all these different things. We we are not used to that system, so we can't even quite think about it. But what if it was like, you can't even go out and buy your own clothing for your children. You must now receive what is put before you. And, um, and realizing there's going to be many times where, okay, this, this size 7 that's tagged for a 7-year-old doesn't fit your 7-year-old because your 7-year-old's extra tall. And it no longer fits. Well, that really is what the educational system has become yes. in America. And we had a complete monopoly from the time that Horace Mann started introducing compulsory attendance laws in 1852 back in Massachusetts to the 19, till 1900, where every state had compulsory attendance laws. There were no exemptions to compulsory attendance. Government had a complete monopoly 
from 1900 to 1925, mm-hmm. and then the Catholics were able to opt out through the uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters court case. That was only 1925. It was 1925, and then mm-hmm. and then it wasn't until 1972 that the Amish were able to opt out in the Yoder versus Wisconsin case, um, and then eventually other Christian schools, and and then around 1983, some of the states began to find exemptions for homeschoolers as well. But the government had a very, very long run of having a lockdown where they're saying you get this one-size-fits-all educational approach and uh, educational philosophy and ideology, and you have a whole generation of parents who have grown up in that and grandparents who have grown up in it, and they think it's normal. Yeah. And now, if you're wearing something other than the government-issued uniform... They think you're nuts. Yes. Well, and they think a lot it's not of it, safe. They think mm-hmm. that you know you're going to catch cold or something bad's going to happen to you mm-hmm. if you don't wear the government issued clothes. You're going to look odd. You're going to you're mm-hmm. not going to know how to talk to people because you're not wearing the right clothing. And but part of it goes back to not just disagreeing with um, the education or side of the government having that right or having that sovereignty or having even the wisdom to know how to clothe their children. It's maybe we disagree on what clothing is. If the government issues out saran wraps, for instance, parents might go, well, wait a minute. That's not education. I'm sorry. That's not clothing. That's not fabric. That's not cotton, so to speak. And that's where I'm looking at this going, what some of what the government is calling education, whether that's their perspective on what gender is, gender fluidity, or um, what uh, sexuality is. Uh, being free sex or or sexual orientation that's um, unbiblical, man with man, woman with woman, I'm saying, hmm, that's not the godly education I want to pass on. That's not wisdom. And so I am saying, what they're calling education for my child, I don't want to accept. Well, we're in an age where parents are going to have to decide which path they're going to choose. Are you going to choose the path of, of least resistance, of cultural acceptance, of status quo, or are you willing to be brave and say, as a Christian, I believe that Scripture is the final authority for life and practice, and if I find something that contradicts Scripture, I'm going to go with Scripture as opposed to cultural norms. And what I would suggest to you is that the concept of the government controlling education uh, or having anything to do with education is a totally anti-scriptural concept. That's a strong statement. The the problem with government education is is this. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read the very last page of the book? We'll just go ahead and and give people uh, the synopsis uh, of of the book uh, here. Why don't you read that? So this is what it says on the very last page. It is my conviction, based on everything I see in Scripture, that everything. I'm sorry, that even if the government school system taught that God created everything in six literal days, 6,000 years ago, that the Bible was the Word of God, and that Jesus was the only way to salvation, God would still oppose them. The ends do not justify the pragmatic means. The fundamental problem with government schools is not ultimately what they teach. It is that they exist. Children or Christian parents need to seek out exclusively and explicitly, Christian education options for their children. Now, that may sound like a really radical statement to you, but I take 237 pages before that one, and I lay out a foundation for why that is exactly the case. 
And I hope that you, as a listener to the podcast, will be brave enough to grab a copy of this book. You can get it from from our website, which is familyrenewal.org, where it's also available on the publisher's website, masterbooks.com. And it's also available anywhere that great Christian books are sold. And so we encourage you to grab a copy of this book, to buy it, to read it, to consider giving it to your friends, to share it with other homeschoolers and your homeschool co-op, to give it to parents who aren't homeschooling, maybe to share it with your pastor, with your church leaders. Um, This is a discussion whose time has come. Uh, It's time for us to have this debate, to have this discussion. What does God say about education? And to whom has God given the responsibility of educating uh, children? And uh, just in a nutshell, when you go through the Bible, there's not one single passage in all the Bible where God commands the government to be involved in education or indicates that in any way that's his plan. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are very uh, systematic and specific about stating what the purpose of government is. It says God created government so that they would bear the sword and punish evildoers. That's why God created civil government. There's no passage in Scripture anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament that would indicate that the church is supposed to specifically teach children or youth. That concept does not come up anywhere in the Bible. Every passage of Scripture that is related to education, and there are many, many, are directed to parents. And most of them are specifically directed to fathers. Uh, I think you're going to learn a lot in this book. And uh, even those who are homeschooling, even those who think maybe, oh, I, I know all this, I, th- I think you may be surprised. I think there will be things in this book that may challenge you and, and question, and you may question some of your assumptions and paradigms. I think that's a good thing. And uh, that's what I'm hoping for is that um, this book will help you to think more systematically, more strategically. There may be parts of the book that make you uncomfortable things that perhaps you don't like or don't agree with, my contention would be you need to take it up with Scripture. That if I'm wrong scripturally, please read the book with an open mind and heart. Uh, go to Scripture. You know, Fact check me. Um, I don't ex- expect you, uh, or nor would I respect you if you just take my word for it. I expect you to fact check it. See for yourself. Be a good Berean. See if it's true. See if it lines up with Scripture. But if it lines up with Scripture, then I would contend that as a Christian, you have an obligation and a responsibility to obey what Scripture teaches. That you can't just cast it aside as uninteresting or irrelevant. That if what I'm teaching is consistent with Scripture, then you need to conform yourself to what Scripture teaches. So again, the book is entitled, Education, Does God Have an Opinion? A Biblical Apologetic for Christian Education and Homeschooling. It's available from familyrenewal.org. We hope you'll look us up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash familyrenewal or forward slash Israel Wayne author. My personal page is israel.wayne. And I'm also on Twitter at familyrenewal. And I'm sorry, no, that's uh, Instagram at familyrenewal. And Twitter at Israel Wayne. I did that just to confuse you. So, Twitter, at Israel Wayne, Instagram, at Family Renewal. Uh, and we hope you will be a regular listener to the Family Renewal podcast here on the Homeschool Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. And um, we also encourage you, if you have not done so, to sign up on our mailing list. We want to be able to send you an email whenever we're speaking in your area. And uh, we send out one email newsletter a month 
and we'll never sell or rent your name. So we encourage you to email us at uh, familyrenewal.org. Sorry, sign up at familyrenewal.org forward slash subscribe. Familyrenewal.org forward slash subscribe. Um, you, when you go through that process, you'll get a notice in your email that you need to click through uh, for a confirmation link. So sign up on the website, click through to, to the uh, confirmation link, and then you will be added to our email list and we can keep in touch with you. So thank you so much for joining us again and uh, we look forward to talking with you again next time. God bless.